The thing about hatred, it's the place where people who can't look sorrow in the eye without wavering run off to. Kentaro Miura Welcome to The Mirror. I'm Justin Reed, and I'm coming to you from a rare, bright and sunny day in the middle of what has been a pretty wet and freezing winter. That um, has been the complete opposite of what I've been used to, but um, so it goes in, in the, the new place that I'm living. And I think this is like the first sort of proper update that I'm recording since I guess I've moved over here now. Like I, I'm kind of halfway between my house in North Queensland and halfway between here, but I just sort of came here to, to just sort of scope it out and see what it's like and stay here with my sisters for a couple of weeks. And that's turned into a a six week uh, sojourn. And there doesn't really seem to be any reason for me to go back just yet. Um, everything at home is looked after and I'm not, um, really missing anything here. So I'm just kind of taking this like extended time and kind of been a bit like a bit like a holiday but it's been better than a holiday because I have the comforts of home and I have you know everything I could need I'm not going separate places to do laundry or I'm not having to find food all the time I can cook food at home and I'm around family and it's been like such a such a good change especially after you know just spending such a long time uh, on my own in, in sort of the middle of the wilderness and as useful as that was and as amazing in many ways as it was, it was also like quite a challenging experience and to step out the other side of that and to emerge into not only a really like comfortable and I guess like welcoming, like loving place, you know, being in a, in a place with the people that you care about and, and sharing a house, but I'm also in a in a city that has like a a lot of amazing things that I didn't have access to before. And that's not just food as much as I love food, but it's, it's, uh, you know, places to visit it's nature. It's, um, (laughs) as much as I hate sort of, um, spending all my time consuming, but it's, it's nice shopping centers and public spaces that you can hang out. It's, it's art galleries and it's cinemas. Like I've been to the cinema maybe half a dozen times already in the six weeks that I've been here And that's a lot more than I did at home because the only thing that ever came to the cinemas we had at home was the standard commercial Hollywood fair. And definitely in the last 18 months, that has been like pretty lackluster. (laughs) Like even before that, I wasn't super impressed, but yeah, it's, it's been like bad. And like, I, I try and give things a go as much as possible, but I think you get to a point where you just know that you're not going to enjoy Godzilla vs. Kong in the way that you would enjoy something like, you know, a, a Wong Kar Wai film or like, I, I think I mentioned it in a previous episode, but my sister and I went and saw Memories of Murder and Parasite by Bong Joon-ho and like seeing those films in the cinema was just such an amazing experience. And the film I had seen, or well, one of the films I had seen just before that was Mortal Kombat, which like I, I mentioned it, it's maybe one of the worst films I've ever seen. If you can even call it a film, it's more a collection of imagery that seems to come from a commercial more than anything. But um, 
yeah, I, di- I digress. It's, it's so amazing to have that. And it's also amazing that, you know, in the time that I've been here, I've started to get a bit of a setup. I have a, I have a desk, uh, sorry, I have a, have a study with a desk and there's a desk for me and a desk for my sister. And there's, you know, plenty of room for things. I've been, um, going through a lot of like artwork that I really love and admire. And I'm figuring out like what I want to get prints of and put on my walls. And I've started like, you know, getting a few prints of some of my favorite paintings and I've been putting them in my space and it's just livened it up in a way that I haven't really had before. And it's because I think I'm like really dedicated to making this place, even if it's not this house, because I'm just in a rental, making this move, um, something that I'm really committing to. And I'm, I don't want to be sort of like one foot in one foot out. And that's ironic, even though it's ironic because I've, you know, still got a bunch of my stuff on like, you know, in another place, (laughs) but it's not, it's not necessary. And it's not that I haven't been doing it because I'm wondering if I should go back. Like there's been such an amazing feeling of being here and being in this new place that I've never had before. And what I realized it is, is that when you stay in one place for a long time, everywhere you go starts to have an emotional context and it starts to have memories and history attached to it. And even if you don't feel those things consciously, they affect you subconsciously. And it wasn't until coming here and being with my family in a new context. And I felt the same when I went and visited them, visited them at the end of last year before I had even considered moving or anything like that. And this was when they were in a different, a different city altogether. They, um, it, it, it felt like I, I was free because I was around the people that I cared for and that I loved and that, you know, and I, and I had that support and I had that structure, but I didn't have any of those, those place memories or those time memories or anything that, uh, anything that sort of brought up the past. And I'm not trying to be too specific here and I'm not trying to sort of like say that like I have all this deep trauma or anything like that. I'm sure like everyone has their own experiences with these things, but it wasn't until creating a space or going to a space where you you've created things that you care about and you have people that you care about that's outside of that historical context that you realize how um, like damaging and defeating that can be sometimes and how, how intense it can be to live in a place where your entire life has happened. And that means good things, but it also means bad things that every time you drive down a certain street, you're reminded of a certain thing. And maybe over time that becomes less and less intense Um, but if you live somewhere for long enough, everywhere you go is going to have some attachment to it. And I think that's why there's always a fondness that people have for going back to their hometown. But an important part of that returning to your hometown later in life is that you went somewhere else. And I, and I've never sort of, I've never sort of believed that moving to a new place, you know, like the whole grass is greener thing will make things better inherently by itself. Of course you have to come to that move and come to that decision with a, with an intention to want to make things better if you're not happy where you were. And it's not that where you are is always bad, but it was just that in my specific circumstance, and I don't know if anyone has had a similar feeling, but it's like, once I've come here, I've realized that I've forgotten a lot of those burdens. I've forgotten a lot of those. I've, I've been able to push away a lot of those sort of cursory things that exist out of the corner of your eye. And like I said, they, they don't really appear in, in your life consciously, but subconsciously they affect you in certain ways and you don't realize it. 
and it can manifest in ways like not believing in yourself enough or not thinking that you're capable of doing the things you want to do because the only the only like level of achievement you've ever seen around you the only level of um uh, the only quality of life you've ever seen is is what's been in that place and when you go somewhere better when you make something better for yourself when you commit to some kind of new beginning somewhere you're actually able to completely widen the aperture again and allow yourself like the ability to do things you couldn't have imagined and I guess I'm saying this like on the back of six weeks of a bit of like a roller coaster ride like I got here and it was amazing and then sort of a week or so later I um I was sort of like struggling financially and without going too much into it like that can really just weigh on your mind and you know that that can create a lot of stresses for you and and not having sort of my material needs perfectly met at that time meant that I was sort of like stressed out a lot and that meant that I wasn't being creative and that feel feeds into this cycle of oh I'm stressed so I feel like I can't create and then because I'm not creating I feel even more stressed because before I had come here everything was fine and I was creating a lot and journaling a lot and you know I've, I've talked a little bit before about how I think that our material conditions are what shapes us it's not the art or the culture we consume uh, necessarily like that has a part of it but the main thing that will affect how our lives go and how we live our lives is whether we have our needs met and that is always going to come down to money and housing and and clothing and food like and if you don't have those things that's going to be your primary concern like if if you're there was this quote from the film black book by paul verhoeven i think it was the main character, uh, Carice Van Houten played, she said something along the lines of if you're constantly like fearing for your life or if you're constantly struggling to survive, you're going to be alienated from who you really are. And I couldn't have agreed with that more. And, and, and let me just say, if you know that film, I promise you, I'm not conflating my sort of myriad struggles of trying to become an artist with the struggle of, of, uh, being a Jewish person living in occupied um, Holland during the Second World War. I'm, I'm not conflating that at all, but rather I just think that's a really good sentiment that kind of explains why you can't do things when you're under so much pressure and why when when you're feeling the stress of those things, how can you really create that art? It, that suffering may manifest in your art. You know, I think a lot of my a lot of my suffering and a lot of my like melancholy feelings manifest in my art. And that's what my art kind of tends to look and feel and sound like, but I can't make it when I'm in that position. It's only when I'm in a better position, when I have money in the bank, when I have, you know, uh, access to exercise and good food and I'm drinking lots of water. And that's when the creativity comes. That's when the ideas come because I'm able to feel, you know, a sense of like, I guess, comfort and security. I don't know too many people who actually, and I'm not saying this isn't the case, you know, you can't generalize across the board, but I don't know too many people who are in the sort of doldrums of depression or are going through something very difficult in their lives that are actually making really great art out of that in the moment. It comes later when they have, you know, a better that when they're in a better place, when they're, when they're better able to, you know, actually have free time to devote to such things as, as a creative pursuit, you know, creative pursuit is, 
is, I don't want to say it's exactly a luxury, but it absolutely is something that, um, yeah, like I said, you, you, you kind of, if you're struggling to survive, it's going to be very hard for you to focus on those things, even if that's what you really want to do, even if that's what's, you know, keeping you going. But like David Lynch with his film, A Razorhead, he didn't have the money to finish the film. So he filmed it over five years. And in that time, he did a bunch of odd jobs. He got a paper route so he could get the money to finance the film for the film stock and to pay a little bit to his crew, I think, and, and to get some food and catering and things like that. And that didn't diminish the work. Um, I think it's only quite a recent development that we feel like if we're not constantly creating all the time, uh, sort of, a, a, I guess, a late capitalist, if you want to call it that. I, I don't know how much I agree with that sort of statement because I feel like this is just sort of like the the natural progression of capitalism. I don't necessarily think is, think this is like the, the end stage, but it is a crisis point. And and that's why there is this seeming like fever pitch of information about having to hustle and grind and having to create things all the time. And that causes stress and pressure as well. And that's why a lot of the things that we see are pretty shit. <laughs> you know, they're, they are, as Chris Crawford says in his Dosing Culture essays, they are just trash that we consume. Then there is no like artistic content to it. There is no like actual craftsmanship behind it. And that's a reflection as well of the material conditions that people are just doing what they can or what people are throwing money at. And what people are throwing money at is quantity, not quality. And that's, you know, that's a topic we've talked about at length here, and I'm sure we're going to continue to talk about it again. But um, yeah, to sort of to move on from that. So I got some money in the bank and I started putting together some, like I said, I've put together a little study. I've got a nice desk set up. I've been printing some artwork. I've been going to the, the cinema. I, I'm setting up a sort of little room out the front that'll, that I'm hoping to turn into a, like a little like home theater with like a projector and some, some nice speakers. Like I've looked into that and I just think it'd be really great to have, you know, a space to actually watch films at home as close to as they were intended to be viewed. And that's going to cost me a fair bit of money. So that's probably a lengthy endeavor as well. But in the meantime, I've, I've kind of just been like getting to know the place here and walking around a lot and also staying inside a lot because it's been pouring rain and freezing cold and, you know, jumping on the trains and the buses to go and explore things. But with, with my needs sort of met, I've been able to be a lot more inspired again, which has been which has been really great. And as well as seeing a bunch of like really great films at the cinema, like on Monday, just gone, I went and saw David Lynch's Wild at Heart, which like I've seen most of his work. That was the first film of his I've actually seen at the cinema. And it was fucking awesome. It was just like the thing that I've been missing. And this is something I'm going to talk about in a future episode as well. The thing that I've been missing in cinema that you just don't get at home unless you have a really great setup is the sound. And that's the thing that I realized really makes a difference in, in going to the cinema versus being at home. It's like, you can get the most amazing visuals, but fuck the sound that you get in a good cinema, it is just unreal. And when I saw, you know, Wong Kar Wai's films at, in, in Brisbane, like the sound just blew me away and it just, it just transported me to a whole nother world. David Lynch, says that as well. Like you can create whole, whole worlds with sound and watching wild at heart. It was absolutely that. Like it was just a, 
a journey. Like I've got goosebumps now, like thinking about it and it's really exciting. It's really exciting to have sort of been on this at this point now, nearly two year journey of like trying to deeply interact with the art form and engage with the art form that I'm most interested in and being able to see a lot of these amazing films at home has been really great, but being able to see them on a big screen with amazing sound, that's been just a whole other story. And yeah, I'm, I'm really stoked about that. So I've been, I've been exploring and, um, uh, my sister, one of my sisters, I'll just say my sister, it doesn't matter which one. <laughs> um, I met a couple of their friends and hung out with, um, one of them and he's really into, like BMX bikes and, and like mountain bikes for dirt jumping and, and things like that. And I don't know that I've ever mentioned it on this, on this show, but before I was a, an artistic soul, I mean, I've always been creative, but before I discovered sort of a, a deep love for different forms of artworks, especially visual arts, like film and photography and more recently painting, um, I was a bike boy. I was absolutely just into riding bikes around every day. That's all I just wanted to do was just ride around my bike and see my friends and go off dirt jumps. And that took me down this um, uh, path of, you know, going to the skate park all the time. And eventually I got this great mongoose 26 inch dirt jumper. It was like, like a really beautiful, like vibrant blue. And it had these motorbike handlebars my dad had put on there with like this red sticker. I can't remember the brand, but I just... I love that bike so much, but when I got to about 15, 16, you know, that like really angsty age and you're sort of late, late, um, late, uh, teenage years, mid to late teenage years and sort of end of high school. Um, and I would probably say there's a, there's a big confluence between that age and also discovering the internet and for the first time in my life around that age having like sort of unbridled access to the internet and I think I've talked about this as well before but that kind of set me down this dark path of like having some kind of internet addiction for sure and something that I still am dealing with and yeah that that kind of took me from this world of being outside a lot and riding my bike around and you know being active to becoming just sort of this like sedentary person and getting all of my endorphins and kicks from the internet and uh, you know no no judgment on myself i'm sure most people had that same story and i'm sure a lot of us like have found as we've progressed from our teens to our 20s to our 30s that we're maybe finding ourselves in a bit of a, a bit of a less um we're finding ourselves in not quite as good physical shape. We can say that. And I'll absolutely say that because from talking to um, my sister's friend and like hanging out with him and then we just started talking about bikes because he's got his bikes hanging on the wall and we just got to talking about it all and it just started flooding back all these memories and we watched a bunch of YouTube videos of like what sort of who the big, you know, dirt jump bike riders at the moment are. And I'm talking about push bikes here, of course. I just want to clarify if I didn't make that obvious, not motorbikes, um, you know, who, yeah. So who, who the big riders are at the moment and you know, what the, what the great latest and greatest bikes are. And it sort of sent me on this like multi-week, um, rabbit hole of like researching all these things and looking up all these different bikes and comparing and seeing what I liked and then kind of convincing myself, like, 
I need to get a bike. Like it's been so many years, but I've just like, I was just like, this is not something I realized I needed. I had sort of an inkling maybe last year that it would be good to get a bike so I can ride around and get sort of some more physical activity because I like walking. I love walking around and just seeing what's around and, you know, observing the world. It's a really important part of my day and I try and do it every single day as much as I can. And, you know, that, that's been really great, but I just started to feel like the limitations of walking. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's no, I don't need a, I don't need a reason other than like I wanted a bike, but my thought process behind it was, I just want to get something that I can get up some speed and maybe I can even go and do some jumps and stuff like that. So yeah, I'd, I started exploring and I had my heart set on and I, I would advise you to Google this. So maybe even if you're not a bike fan, like it, it might be worth um, just looking at these so you can see some of the, the beauty of the engineering and things like that. Like I know I'm being an absolute nerd about this stuff right now, but I was looking at getting the Marin, M-A-R-I-N Alcatraz, which is a 26 inch dirt jump bike uh, ridden by this rider, Matt Jones. And he's, he's got a YouTube channel and his videos are really highly produced and he does some really crazy stuff, but he's a really, seems like a really genuine person and genuinely enthused about the sport that he is a professional in. And it was really exciting to watch that and really exciting to see, you know, him riding around and doing all these things as a, there's a great video where he does a day trip from England to Barcelona and flies there in one day with his bike, rides around for five or six hours and then flies back in the evening. And it's, it just really sort of gave me some inspiration to like, oh, if I wanted to go into the city, if I want to, you know, be, be getting around and seeing different things, it's such a, it's such a great way to get around because with a car, you know, you're obviously going to get there a lot quicker, but you have a lot of traffic to contend with with walking, you know, you can only really sort of go a certain distance, um, unless you're some kind of super athlete, which I am not before you, you know, you have to kind of turn around and come home because you can, you can only go so far with your fitness and the speed that you have. Um, and then with public transport, you know, that that's probably my favorite form of transport, honestly, like someone driving me somewhere relatively quickly, but with all of those places, all of those things, you never really get to go somewhere at a decent speed to explore a lot. But also if you just want to take a deviation quickly, you can't like, if you want to just ride off through some park, you can do that with a bike. You can't do that with a car. And it just, it just hit me like, this is going to be a really great way to get around. And it's also going to be a really good thing for, you know, continuing my fitness. I've been a bit lazy since getting here. I've been planning on joining a gym, but I've just been for certain reasons a little bit hesitant at the moment and it's probably just because it's so cold and I just can't be bothered to do anything at all but I uh yeah so I had my heart set on this bike and I talked to my dad about it and he was pretty much like yeah these are cool but have you thought about like a large size BMX like a BMX bike that is the same size as the mountain bike essentially that you're looking at and really the main difference is going to be the way the frame is shaped and that they wouldn't have suspension forks and disc brakes, which means that the bike would like the BMX bike would be lighter and it would be easier to ride around. And because of the way it's shaped, it's actually going to be more comfortable for just casual riding as well as any type of, you know, jumping or anything like that. And I thought about it a bit more and I looked through some of the options he sent me and I was like, you know what? I think 
I think he's right. I think what I want is not some crazy dirt jumping bike because if I'm completely honest, while I used to do some of that as a kid, that was 10 years ago or, you know, 12 years ago at this point, I don't think I'm going to be quite at that level. And even if I am, I don't know if I need to go and spend like $2,000 on this bike as much as it's beautiful, as much as it will be amazing. And I know I will ride it all the time, but maybe I do need something that's just a bit more casual. So I did a bunch of research and, and, and with still like all these delays in the shipping of products and, and materials for the making of bikes um, worldwide, it's really hard to get anything at the moment. And what was around, I sort of wasn't too happy with. It was either I'm going to spend $1,200 on a BMX that, you know, I may as well just spend the extra and get the mountain bike, or I'm going to be getting something that's probably going to be too small and not super good. But I found a, I found a 26 inch and you should look this up too. So you can, you can go on this journey with me, but I found on Gumtree, which for any international listeners, if you're not familiar with it, it's basically like Facebook marketplace, buy, swap, sell, that kind of thing. I found a kink drifter, 26 inch BMX. I actually found two of them secondhand sort of in as new condition. They said, um, within, within the region of the city that I live in. And by that, I mean about 45 minutes drive or an hour on a train. So, you know, it it was going to be a bit of a mission to get out there, but I'm constantly going into the city anyway. I contacted one of the guys because he had it for a great price and I trained it out there and caught a couple of buses and had a little bit of a ride and it was in a little bit of a beat up shape, like just cosmetically sort of I couldn't really see anything wrong with it. I did had a little bit of a ride on it and instantly I was like, oh, this is heavier than I thought it would be. And this is not quite, I guess I would say as comfortable as I thought it would be. And I'll get to that in a minute. But looking at the price and looking at what it is, I was just like, if I get this, then, you know, my fixation on this whole bike thing is over. I can just move on with my life. I have the bike, then I can ride it. So I paid the man right then and there. Now the new proud owner of a kink drifter 26 inch um it's the 2021 model which is like in a copper color yeah it's it's beautiful i love it and i've been riding it every day so i rode it back from his his place to the train station which was if i if i was taking the buses it probably would have been like 35 minutes 40 minutes or something like that but on the bike it was 20 minutes and i could just go straight there and that was like instantly i was like wow this is so good because I can catch public transport if I want, but if I want to go directly to somewhere, save myself some time, but not have to take my car and sit in traffic and pay for fuel and all these things, I've got the bike. And it was just, it was both (laughs) liberating to have this thing to sort of feel like a, a little bit of a kid again, to have sort of like the upgraded version of what I used to ride around as a kid, you know, like these BMX bikes, but also after riding for like three minutes, my entire body was hurting. Like I was just, I was just in, in, in so much pain. Like I nearly got cramps in my calves, cramps in my quads. Um, I came home and I like rode it around a little bit more, but the next day when I woke up, I just, my entire body was sore, like muscles. I didn't even know in my back and shoulder could be sore, like back and shoulders. They were sore too. And while I was like, oh my God, this just hurts so much. I had another realization, which is like, this is really good for me because I've talked as well before about sort of like a a little bit of a physical fitness um, regimen that I have to kind of help with, to help with mitigating the reality of, you know, 
sitting on a computer all day long and like working, working in a, in an industry that requires you sit down a lot and to be on the bike is actually working out a lot of these muscles that I've needed to work out for the longest time, which is great. And it's, I think it's going to help me with like fixing my posture. It absolutely is going to help me with hardening up these soft ass hands because they've, they've gotten way too soft and comfortable with being inside on a computer. And yeah, I've just got kind of like bruises all over my body just from like riding this bike for half an hour. And yeah, it's, it's quite funny, but it, it it's cool. And I've, I've had it for, I've had it for three days now and I can already feel my body starting to get a little bit used to it now. I didn't go quite as hard the last couple of days as I did on that first day. Cause I just didn't, I just didn't really think about like how hard it would be on my body to like, just be absolutely flying down some road on this bike, considering I haven't ridden a bike in, in, I don't know, four or five years or something like that. But yeah, it's, it's an awesome thing. And, and I'm so happy to have this perfect, uh, intermediate sort of transport option because, you know, I love catching the train, but it, it's annoying to, this is such a bourgeois problem, but like, it's annoying to drive the car there. It's annoying to, you know, have to get connecting buses to get on the train, but just riding your bike down and taking your bike into the city, not only are you sort of saving on some time or you're giving yourself less hassle, you don't have to look for parking, but I've also got transport that I can ride around while I'm there. So yeah, I'm going to do a day trip soon into the city and take my bike and just cruise around and see what's in there. So yeah, that's, that's, that's great, honestly. And I know I've been spending half this episode just talking about myself. Um, that's generally what I tend to do. And I was thinking about this as I was riding my bike around earlier that I was wondering about how much I should really sort of share these personal anecdotes and how much I want to put out there into the world. But then I think about it again and I think about the reason I do this project and it probably comes up every episode and I'm not sorry about that, but I'm recording them more than anything for myself to remember my life, for myself to as I've, as I've outlined to draw a line in the sand to say kind of like, this is where I'm at with an idea and this is how I'm feeling about things. And I think, a, I think a personal touch to it is very important. It's, it's not just a way for me to remember. It's not just my memories and, you know, like a, a an audio journal entry, but I think it also for anyone else listening to it, I think it does an important job of humanizing the idea of artists, I guess. And having empathy for people beyond their art and beyond their products, even though this is a product, but the product is you hearing about myself. And I think that's, I think, and I'm, and, and I'm trying not to be narcissistic. I mean, I guess in many ways, a lot of creative pursuits are narcissistic, especially in the culture that we have now, you know, like the very idea of talking to yourself into a microphone, that is a narcissistic pursuit, but it's also something that I find a sense of, peace in, I find, you know, some catharsis. And I think if other people are looking, uh, and I think for people listening to this, that there is an interest in, in knowing actually the people behind things, you know, not necessarily needing to know what an artist's artwork means or to hear that from them, because I don't necessarily think I always want to give away those things because I don't want to take away people's agency and people's ability to draw connections themselves because that is what has made 
me so inspired and, 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 you know, able to even talk about these things is like interacting with art that is not seeking to explain things to you all the time. And it, it pops up so often, like this sense of ambiguity in, in the work that in the work that I've been dealing with lately from from Citizen Kane to Parasite to Memories of Murder, like this sense that this sense that you will never truly know what the artist meant. You will never truly know what the artist was thinking and feeling when they created it, but that's not the point. The point is for you to draw your own conclusions from it. The point is for you to appreciate the art and also to appreciate that a human being made this. And I think that's a really great transition point, a good segue point here for what I wanted to talk about today. And the reason why I called this episode Death of the Artist. Recently, I guess it was a little over a month ago. So a little bit of backstory. I've been reading this manga series, which is for those who are unaware, it is a form of like Japanese comic um, like graphic novels and, and art with art with dialogue and things like that. And I've been reading this series called Berserk, which I don't know if I've ever mentioned, but if I haven't, I have been planning to do some episodes around it with a friend of mine. And Berserk is essentially a dark fantasy series. It's, it's an incredibly dark, uh, brutal, harrowing series following this this warrior called Guts who has been through all these awful things in his life and is just trying to make his way in the world and also I guess struggling with his sense of trust and sense of humanity and it doesn't really help that the world that he lives in is filled with demons and monsters and horribly corrupt evil people just trying to not only do him in but just to cause pain and misery all the time and it's this this incredibly detailed story and the the author Kentaro Miura uh, the mangaka who he's, he's not only the author but the the artist who creates illustrates paints all of the panels has been creating this series since 1988 which is you know insane it's it's a 30 year story that he has been continuously working on and he's taken breaks along the way and the scope of it is insane. And I heard about it from uh, Lewis and Louisa from the cinema cartography when they talked about it. And I, I looked into it and I was like, you know what, this seems like something I could be interested in because I've always been one of the biggest genres that I've always loved. And I don't really spend too much time in it now, but I, as, as a younger person, I spent a lot of time reading and watching anything to do with fantasy. So I guess it probably started with Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. And then as I got older, I got into, you know, George R. R. Martin's The Song of Ice and Fire series and watched all of the Game of Thrones TV show. And I, I loved that stuff. I loved that so much. I, I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe it's even something I could sort of look into further down the line doing an episode on talking about fantasy. But Berserk just felt like a natural progression for me where I'm at with my life and sort of the awareness I have of the, I guess, like the dark forces that are constantly swirling around us in, in, in our society, in our culture. And to have a, a series that was not only incredibly artistic in that the, the illustrations are beautiful, like the art that makes up the bulk of what berserk is is absolutely mind-blowing and I'd never really experienced anything like that before but it felt like 
it was the right art at the right time for me. And I will say that I, it took me a little while to read the first book because it was right when I was getting back into reading again. And the publisher Dark Horse have been releasing these deluxe volumes, which are essentially there's like, I think up to date, there are 40 volumes of the series and each deluxe volume comes in this large, this large like leather bound black uh, volume with Berserk written in red and the, the sort of the logo of Berserk um, carved into the front of the books. And there's three volumes in each. And it is such like a beautiful, beautiful physical article. And they're still releasing them. So like I said, this has been a series that's been being released since 1988 or 1989, I believe, is when like the, the first proper edition came out. And it took me like a month or two to really read the first one. But then when I got to the end of the first one, I, it just clicked. I was just like, this is, this is special. This, this is speaking to me in some kind of way. And I, as quickly as possible, got the next one and got the next one. And I've to date gotten five of the deluxe volumes, which means that I've read 15 of the total 40 volumes, you know, sort of a bit over a third of the way through the series. And I flew through them. I think I read the third volume in like two days. And when I got to the fourth volume, I was like, I need to slow down because they haven't released all of these yet. And I'm not sure I want to start collecting just the regular volumes because I really want the full set of the deluxe volumes as they come out and they still got another year or so left of like releases. So I'll just pace myself a little bit with it. And I took the fourth one a bit slower. And when I got to the end of that, some events that happened towards the end of the fourth volume are just, how do I say, you can't just stop. You have to keep reading. So I read through to the fifth one and got through sort of like a main story arc. And it came to sort of a new, a new beginning, I guess. Well, not a new beginning. It came to a, a, new, a new chapter in the series. And I just took a bit of a break for a while. And so that, that's been my background with Berserk. And if anyone's interested, um, if you're looking for something different, if you're looking to branch out into some kind of different form of art, absolutely, absolutely get into Berserk. It is amazing. There is anime series and some movies and whatnot, but I don't know, call me a purist, but it's just so good. And the way I hear the voices in my mind and even during this one specific scene, it doesn't matter what the scene is, but it, it was, it was a, shall we say a quite a monumental scene within the story. I could hear music like in my mind and I could feel the way that the, the, I could feel the pacing of it. Well, I guess like it was a film, I could feel the pacing of the panels and, and the speed at which you were supposed to read through them. Some fast, some slow. And, and that sense of like, when you go from a page that has six panels on it and you've got a two page spread and there's 12 panels there and then you go to the next page and there's only two panels on each page and then you go to the next one and the entire two pages is taken up with one giant artwork. Like it is just stunning. It, 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 there, there's many moments where I would just be flying through it because I'm just like obsessed with it and I, I couldn't stop reading. And then you just get to a panel that is so big and has so much detail and it's just so expressive. This black and white pen drawn illustration is just so expressive, but it just stops you in your tracks and you're just looking at it. And like I said, I could hear music in my mind, which has never happened to me before. I'd never, I'd never seen a 2D illustration 
and heard music before. And, and that was another moment when I just knew that this, this work was special, that this work meant something to me that I, I just wanted to live in that moment forever. Almost. I don't know. That's super corny, but I just, it means a lot to me and I've even written, I guess like you could call them some essays about, about the series. And, and I'm not sure really what to do with them at this point. I'm not sure if they should become a video essay. I'm not sure if I should publish them somewhere, but it, it, it's evoked a lot in me and it's really made me think a lot about like my own humanity, like this at its core, despite dealing with, you know, demons and, and, and knights and, and extravagant excesses of violence and, and, and this is a this is a violent series. Um, it, it is it is very intense. It is not called berserk for no reason. But there are moments of such tenderness. There are moments of such sorrow and sadness. And you get so attached to these characters in a way that I can't quite recall. Maybe the last the last time I had that experience was reading the Song of Ice and Fire books. And you know, being inside of the characters' heads, you really you really get that. But this this to me, I think is like the ultimate in fantasy and it is the ultimate experience and I, and I would absolutely recommend it. But so the reason why um, I, I'm bringing all of this up and again, the reason why this episode is called The Death of the Artist is that really tragically about a month ago, I mean, not a, not a month ago at the time of this, reco- at the time of you hearing this, but at the time of this recording, Kentaro Miura passed away at, at the age of 54, I think, or maybe 53. And now, you know, I'm a, I'm a recent convert to the world of Berserk. I, I'm, I'm not someone who's been reading from the beginning because I was not alive and I was not even aware of this because I had never sort of sought to break out of, I guess, the, the Western canon of um, not only art, but like, you know, graphic novels. The only graphic novel I've ever read before was Watchmen by um, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, I believe is the artist. And that's an amazing read as well. I would, I would highly recommend that, but yeah. So, so it's, uh, so he, he passed away and at, at the point of his passing, the series is still unfinished and, you know, like I said, he's been working on this for like 30 years and there was, there was a lot of, like I'm not a part of any online communities like at all. I, I, I'm pretty sure I've made that pretty clear. I'm not, I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Instagram. I'm not on Reddit. I'm not on discord. Like I have these things, but I don't spend my time doing that because I try and to, I try to pursue these things in my, in my daily life and to make these relationships in person. And it's, it's understandable that, especially if you live somewhere where, you know, like I have that you don't have anyone to talk about with these things. It's really alluring to just go and talk to people that, that know about it online and to be a part of those communities. And so a lot of these people released videos, you know, sort of mourning the loss of him and they were all released quite quickly afterwards. And some of them were quite touching and a few of them were more like informative talking about, you know, the state of the project and talking about maybe the potential of of it being continued with um, a series of apprentices that he was he was training up, but I just had some thoughts about it that I that I wrote down at the time, and I guess I just wanted to to put them out there, and 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 I just want to be clear as well here, like this is not 
something that I seek to judge anyone for and this is not something that I I want to make anyone feel bad for if you identify with any of these um, topics that I'm going to go into and it's because I've been in that position myself and it's not by chance that I mentioned George R. R. Martin earlier because he is famously an an author who created this incredibly rich detailed universe in his works in in his A Song of Ice and Fire series and the spin-off novels that 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 spawned this this uh, blockbuster television show Game of Thrones and if you haven't heard of it I mean I would I would probably read the books I would start with them because I watched maybe the first season and then moved on to the the books and read them all incredibly quickly that was before picking up reading again in the last sort of six months or so that was really the last series that I read and I became obsessed with those books and it was about the time that I was I was 18 when when I read them and it was right when I had really been like I said had this un, I'd really had this unbridled access to the internet and reddit you know like subreddits were all the rage at the time that sounds like such an old person thing they were all the rage at the time I mean they still are all the rage I don't think I've ever said that um, phrase in my life but it was it was like the right time to be into any type of subculture or <laughs> phantom for lack of a better word because there was a lot of people wanting to discuss these things and talk about theories and talk about things they loved about the work and that was like this really great experience but then as time went on as the series of the show caught up with where the books are at because that book series is also unfinished and George R. R. Martin is still with us. He's still alive. But to date, like it's been it's been 10 years since he released the last book and the series actually wrapped up um, like it, it finished. The, the, the TV series finished, I think, three years ago or two years ago. And people had a lot of conflicted feelings about that. I'm not going to get into, you know, was the books better or was the TV show better or did the writers screw up the TV show or whatever. Like there's plenty of discourse about that online. But what I do want to talk about is the reality that people have been essentially and and probably still are, I, w- I wouldn't know, but I, I wouldn't be surprised, have been demanding of George R. R. Martin, the author, to continue his series, to give us a quote unquote real ending, to give us the proper ending, demanding that he he wrap this thing up, like basically saying what the hell, like you didn't give us this thing, you promised us something and you never gave it to us. And I think that's an interesting parallel here because while I didn't see anywhere near as much of it, I did I did catch a sentiment of people sort of crying out like, oh, what the hell's going to happen with the series now? Like, you know, like, oh, it sucks that he died, but like, what the fuck? Like, what about us? And it made me really think about the idea of like how we picture artists and how we think of them as their artwork first and I'm sure many artists would want you to do that but that their their life comes second to that and there's something that both of these these series um A Song of Ice and Fire and Berserk talk about is like the finite reality of life and to focus on I guess closure and endings you know demanding that we have an ending demanding that we know what happens that's such a that's such a Western idea, I think. It's it's tragic, but it undermines like the very existence and the legacy of the rest of their work. 
I guess by, by, by demanding that an artist finish something that by sort of like yelling at customer service, like where the hell are my fries? I paid for fries. I want my fries as well as my burger and drink. It kind of like takes away like the, the beauty of the work that they've done to date. And if I really think about it, I'm completely okay with never getting an ending to a song of ice and fire. I mean, we got the ending to the TV series and that didn't really seem to bring people much closure or, or like a sense of like finality. And again, I think it's like this, this idea it's, and it's a recent idea that art has to have an ending that art has to be explained. And that, like I said, it, it, it not only undermines the existence of, of the artist, but the, the legacy of the rest of their work. And, and there is a difference here between singular artists and like the corporate machine of production. And this is why I think maintaining control of your art and your vision is so important. And those things might seem like a little bit of a, like, how do they relate to each other? But with, with George R. R. Martin, you know, he kind of just, I, I, I can't speak for him. No one will ever be able to speak for him except for him. But I get the sense that if he wanted to finish the work, if that was something that was truly within him, he would have finished it or he would be continuing to finish it. And maybe he is, maybe he is writing it, even though 10 years has been the longest gap between any of his books previously before that, I think five or six years was the longest time between when one of his books were released. If he wanted to do it, he would. And if he doesn't want to do it, then you move on with your life. You don't, you know, you, and that's, I guess the problem with him having the show created is that he probably in his mind and something to keep in mind about him too, as well, he started out as a writer for TV before he became a novelist. So maybe in his mind, the, t- the show is the ending he wanted. The show is the way he wanted it to end. Maybe in his mind, he always just wanted it to be a TV show anyway. I mean, when he created the books, it was a, a show. It was a, sorry, when he created the, the books, he said, these were books I wanted to create that would be unfilmable. And then they went and filmed them. So I don't know exactly how he felt about that, but he was quite involved with the show for a lot of its runtime. And yeah, we'll, we'll never know, but I don't think it's like healthy to, to just be online all the time, like demanding that this person be creating something for you. You know, he, it's, it's really, it's really great that he has maintained this ability to create it if and when he wants to. And I think that even though we may never have an ending in a, in a, in a novel form, that's okay. Like it's, it's okay because life people move on, you know, not everyone is like Kentaro Miura. Not everyone wants to work on the same story for 30 plus years. It's amazing that he, he has, and that, that scope of work and that level of love and commitment comes through in every single page of the work and that he spent all that time on it. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And we should be able to, and we should be appreciating that for what it is, not what it could be. You know, again, like a little bit of a, a little bit of a tangent, but like, I think, I think like the way that they have maintained control of their art and their vision is so important. And George R. R. Martin has talked about the fact that he, he won't, he won't let anyone else finish the series when he dies and he wants all his notes destroyed. And 
people cry out like that's so selfish but it's like this is his work like he's sure you love it but at the end of the day if he wasn't doing it for himself then you're just going to get this like terrible thing anyway and i and i think that while there's always this contradiction with art and it's it's really hard i think for purely consumers and and i hate that that is a a thing i hate that that is a concept tied to the the reality of art but like purely consumers of art maybe don't understand because they are not privy to the nature of production they are not privy to the nature of the reality that you could spend a lot of time on something and then get towards the end and ultimately go you know what this isn't this isn't right i don't want this anymore i don't want any part of this i don't want to finish this i don't want to do this thing and you can't exactly you can't just apply a capitalist critique of like well you need to finish it anyway and get it out there and get the project out it's like yeah sure there is absolutely benefits to that but if it's not serving you if this is something that's just going to go out into the world and you just feel like you know what i was mistaken about all of this then fuck it like don't put it out there that's your that's your right and that's that's how you like you need to maintain control of your art and your vision it's so important and i think like one of the ways that you do that is by living a life free from like noise and undue influence and and i think these artists have been like that they live very private lives and and they you know they're not listening to the demands of people all the time because like people are just demanding things that they don't want. And I think you, if you can step back from the situation and that's what I feel like I've been able to do, you can see that to contrast these two artists, but not to compare them because they are different people and they have different ideas and they want different things. And that's what's beautiful about art is that there are billions and billions of different perspectives out there. Kentaro Miura was working on Berserk up until the time of his untimely death and George R. R. Martin, I, I am, I'm not sure. Uh, we know that Kentaro Miura was, was working on his, but I'm not sure with, with, um, with Martin, but it, it doesn't matter because that's their choice. That is their life that they need to live free from that noise. That is their life that they need to live free from that noise and, and from that influence. And, you know, you've got to be selective about the voices you listen to, about the mentors that you follow and like critically evaluate the voices around you. But most importantly, like create the space to listen to your own instinct. And that's, that's the vibe I get from, from Martin, like just looking from afar uh, as a, as an admirer, uh, as someone who, who has loved his work. Um, I get the sense that he's done with it. I'm cool with that. And it shouldn't matter what I think. It shouldn't matter what anyone thinks. It should just come down to him at the end of the day. Like this is his work, you know, and I guess to move towards sort of like a bit of a conclusion here. And I guess in like a way to pay a bit of homage to Kentaro Miura. Like I keep, I keep thinking about the publishing, the, this, this, uh, statement that the publishing house, um, he published Berserk through made, they always said that when he would come in to visit them, he was always so happy and he always wanted to talk about his favorite manga and his favorite anime and that he was truly like a kid. And it's just such a beautiful thought to think that, you know, here is this super successful artist who has touched the lives of millions of people across the world. And he lives this life in which the things that he, 
he does. They're, they're a joy to him that he loves what he does. And that's, that's why he takes his time. And that's why he has worked on this thing, this, this project berserk for, for so many years, you know, that beautiful like reality of childhood is that it's, it's a deep connection to your subconscious that allows you to follow what you truly need. Like that's what your childhood is. And if you can maintain parts of that in your adult life, if you can follow that, that subconscious voice that is guiding you in the directions that you need to go in the moments that you need to, to follow it, I think that's when you're able to create the best things that, that you, you need and, and want and, and that you feel you need to get out there. Like berserk is, is such a pure expression of this. It, despite all the horror and darkness of it, there is, there's so much love and so much empathy and, and hope despite like the, the dark world that is continuing to grow and expand within the story. And this is what I've, this is what I've learned from that series and from Kentaro Miura in the ultimately brief time I've been reading it. And, and more than anything, it just makes me feel closer to him as a person. Like we, we talk a lot, I think about in, in this day and age, like we talk a lot in, in this age of increased awareness and understanding of separating art from the artist. And often that is kind of like a, a way to kind of say like, um, look, this, this artist may have bad opinions or may have done bad things, but I still like his art. So we need to keep that out of the conversation, but I never hear, and I've never heard anyone approach it from the direction of actually empathy for the artist as a person that when an artist whose work has value to you passes away, that we should put aside their work and mourn for the person who created it. Like it's always the opposite direction. It's always like, no, let's not talk about the artist. I just love the art. Don't tell me that my favorite artist is horrible. But what about when someone we love passes away? Maybe we shouldn't be mourning about the work. Like I can understand it's a natural progression that people make, but it feels like in a world where the limit of creative expression for most people seems to be just their consumer choices, like what, what content they buy to consume. There is a sentiment of frustration that with the artist's death, they will no longer be able to keep consuming their goods you know, where are my favorite treats? Like how dare the artist die? It, it, it feels like that. And I've seen that sentiment. And at times I've felt that sentiment myself in regards to George R. R. Martin, like, where is the book? Like, I just want the book uh, as a, as a foolish, you know, um, younger man. And it, it just, it just makes me sad. Like, and this is not most people, this is, this is just some people, but yeah, it, it makes me sad because it reduces this person to the sum total of their creative output and it completely commodifies their work and dehumanizes both the artist and the people experiencing the work and it just reduces everything to a transaction. And I think this is also why there is such a, a strong focus on intellectual property of studios and production houses developing existing material like you know, new Ghostbusters films, regardless of who the Ghostbusters are. It's not about the artist behind it. It's not about like the, the talent involved. It's just about milking the IP as the cash cow that it is. And, you know, I, I would hope that whatever the plans are for Berserk in, in lieu of Kentaro Mura's passing, that it's what he wanted is what 
is is followed and if that means that there is no ending to the story well that's okay because the reality is many people's lives and stories i guess are cut short or you know his his exhibit a in the case of mira himself like his life ended before i'm sure he would have planned for it to but that is that is the nature of life and that is something to mourn and something to be sad about and and i and i did feel really sad about it and i continue to feel that way that you know someone who spoke to me in a way that I'd never been spoken to before. Someone who created music in my head that had never existed before purely by applying his ink to paper and presenting it to me in a way I'd never seen it before. Like I mourn that that person isn't with us anymore. And I, I feel, I, I feel sad that there is only a, a, a limited amount of time that he got to spend on the earth with his loved ones and doing what he loved, which was seemingly creating this series. But there is also so much to celebrate there. There is also not only an entire life's work there, but there is there are lessons to be learned about the kind of person that Miura was, that he, like his, his publishing house said, that he was always a joyful person to be around that he was like a child always talking about his 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 favorite art with with other people around him and that that is something to be admired and i think that's what we need to take away from this you know like i've i've felt that way i've felt i've been down that path of inhumanity and it's just a toxic and sad place to be and and i think i'm trying my best to celebrate the person that kentaro mira was and and also to celebrate his work as well and to appreciate its impact on me, but ultimately to, to be a human being and recognize that another human being has passed away and and that trumps the art, that the, the, the reality of, of a human life is more important than any creative project will be, even if it doesn't feel like that. But that is the truth because, you know, not only does this process of, reducing someone to their work of, of reducing an artist to their output or even worse to just look at them as the source of the the good that you were consuming it creates a dark vision of humanity like not not only does that process create a dark vision of humanity by removing the human reality of the artist but we're killing art in the process like the idea of the artist in society is being destroyed but it doesn't have to be. We can change our relationship with these, with these ideas and a great many other things we can change too. So I'm going to leave it there today, folks. Um, yeah, I don't know if I got a little bit too intense at the end there, but th those were just my feelings that I had when I was coming across some of the some of the ways that people were dealing with this news. And of course, people are always going to you know, mourn in different ways and, and to deal with these things in different ways. And I don't want to tell anyone how to deal with, with things like this, but I, I just think from a humanist perspective, as someone who appreciates art, you know, enough to talk about it as much as I do, to think about it, to write about it every single day, that we can't reduce a person to just what they create. We can't do that with 
artists. We can't do that with people who work in retail shops. We can't do that with anyone who has any kind of pursuit in their life, whether it's something they're doing for creative pleasure and it also happens to generate them an income or whether it's their job that they do because they need to survive and make a living. So I guess on that note, I'll end it there, but I hope you all have a, uh, a great week and great weekend. And if you're looking for something to enrich your life, I would absolutely recommend getting into Berserk because it's, like I said, I'm, I'm five issues into the deluxe volume and deluxe volumes. And I think that I'll be picking up the next one soon. I've just, honestly, I've just taken a bit of a break from it to just sort of, you know, I guess it might sound weird to take a break from his work out of like respect for him, but that's just what I felt. I just felt like I just wanted to sit with my feelings and not, not feel like I needed to rush out and find out what happened next in the story, but to, to process like the reality of, of, of losing someone that ultimately I don't know and never knew and will never have the chance to know. But in a way through their art, I feel close to them and I feel akin to them. So yeah, take care of yourselves and and take care of, take care of people around you because they're more than, you know, they're more than what they create. They're more than what they put out there. And yeah, thank you very much for listening. And I will talk to you again very soon. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Mirror. The Mirror seeks to provoke questions around the way we create and experience art. And it's my sincere hope that in some way it helps you in your own creative practice and perhaps your life beyond. If this project reaches you in some way, helps you reflect or reframe, or indeed provokes any kind of feelings within you, I'd love to hear from you about it via the contact form on my website. I really appreciate your engagement with The Mirror. You can support me and the work that I do by becoming a sustaining member for as little as $40 a year by signing up at justinreed.com.au support. You will help me continue to create exceptional work feel great about directly funding compelling art, and you'll also receive a bunch of great benefits, including access to exclusive films, artworks, and behind-the-scenes material on my membership platform that you can't experience anywhere else, discounts on my online store, and higher-tier subscribers even get free access to all of my premium films before anyone else. So become a sustaining member and sign up at justinreed.com.au support. You can also support the show by subscribing to my YouTube channel and listening to full episodes of The Mirror there, complete with meditative, original visuals created just for this project. Our fantastic music is written, produced, and performed by Annalisa Vetrunio, with drums contributed by Giacomo Greco. All of these details and links are included in the episode description. And until next time, I hope you're out there creating great work on your terms. I'm Justin Reed. And you have been listening to The Mirror.